uh, the Rijksmuseum has advertised with the girl with the Earl Peering, of course. But yeah, Earl if it's only... He said Earl Peering. He said Earl oh. Peering. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sounds like a blues singer, Earl Peering. <laughs> It's Friday, February the 10th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Dareff, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Vintage Shed Destroyer, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Not-So-Dutch World Champion. Yeah, I think we should start with your uh, you job title, Gordon, yeah. because it is um, simultaneously a sort of a disclaimer to our listeners, yes. I think, Yeah. Um, because what's happening in your backyard? What's happening in my backyard right now is uh, the 101-year-old shed um, that uh, is in, <laughs> has been kind of uh, slowly uh, crumbling away in the, behind my house. Um, is did a, it get a letter from the king last year or not? It didn't, though. It should have done, though. Oh. Yeah, and there's been pro- probably some uh, Swedish or Finnish writer has, uh, has written an entertaining book about it as well but um <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah but um no it was, it, but it's uh yeah it's, it, it, it's being pulled down and replaced and this is the last uh, my neighborhood was built in 1922 it had its centenary last year and uh, this is the original shed that was built with the mm. house it's the last one in the row i think oh, really? and, uh, oh. but yeah but there's so, a yeah, piece so, of heritage that you're destroying a little bit of history yeah we're, we're knocking down dutch heritage indeed yeah i sort of feel a bit like the taliban but um <laughs> it's, uh, but uh yeah it's, uh, it was then, needed it was yeah, it was needed. It was uh, it was subsiding at one end. It was starting to leak, and uh, yeah, it was it just uh, its time had come. Uh, but it's the complicating factor was that uh, when they built them, they built them as semi-detached sheds. So each it was shared between two Sem- semi-detached or attached well se- sem- semi-detached as in two yeah one building um the, the straddling two gardens with a wall in the middle so that my neighbors it was also my neighbor's shed so my neighbor and i had to kind of sit down with our agendas and have a you know a complicated <laughs> meeting with lots of cups of coffee and tiny biscuits to decide when we actually pulled this shed down and placed it and then of course we've got to put a fence up and obviously boundary fences and a notorious source of au pair so i imagine yeah. the Rhein will get involved at some point <laughs> uh, almost certainly but yeah the shed is coming down and uh, th- that is why you may in the course of this podcast hear um, noises of um, yeah drilling or bar- barrel loads of bricks being, uh, being uh, uh, transported through the house yeah so <laughs> just to let people yeah. know that uh, so that's it yeah so exciting news my garden shed is getting replaced um <laughs> More kind of, uh, yeah, some news of sort of uh, rubble and uneven surfaces uh, from, from you, though, uh, Paul, because uh, you've, you've won uh, some kind of a world title in um, obstacle bike racing. Well, I didn't, but uh, <laughs> one of my fellow countrymen did, uh, yeah. literally, because I'm a quarter Belgium, and uh, Mathieu van der Poel is, was born in Belgium, yeah. even though he uh, has Dutch nationality. Um, he won the uh, uh, the World Championship of cyclocro- Cyclocross in yeah. uh, Hoge Heide yeah. uh, this weekend, um, which is also in Brabant, uh, close to the Belgian border. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is also an unprecedented podcast, I think, because we for, for the first time we don't have a sports section. No, we've, had, um, we've uh, skipped the sports section before. 
I remember. Did we? Okay. Once or twice. Yeah, I yeah. Can, I, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, at least it is an unusual podcast because we usually don't do that. But there was simply no sport except this one. So we thought, look, let's uh, let's just uh, give it me, give me a job, sport-related job title, uh, and, and that way we can at least uh, talk about Mathieu van der Poel. Um, I think he had a uh, 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 he did a really good job. He has, of course, his his arch nemesis is Wout van Aert, who yeah. is who is, who is a, a Belgian. Belgian. Um, yeah. Well, not entirely, <laughs> because okay. his uh, grandfather is Dutch, right. so uh, he is a quarter Dutch as well. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, they are uh, they are they are rivals. They, uh, basically, it is them, and then there is a, an enormous gap, and then the rest comes. So it's always uh, basically a duel between these two, and it was uh, apparently it was very exciting. And uh, um, uh, but in the end, Mathieu van der Poel won, so um, we can now claim the the world championship. Uh, for the Netherlands. Yeah, so well done to Mathieu. Yeah, and I was in- intrigued watching. I don't watch an awful lot of cyclocross. In fact, I think this is probably the first or second time I've watched it. I've gotten you have to sort of ride a bike over various surfaces, including like um, uh, uh, over, over uh, d- d- just over rough ground, but also you have to sort of jump over a couple of um, uh, wooden beams to be laid down the road. It's a bit like sort of driving through Belgium, basically, right? And there's a section <laughs> right at the end where they go on a smooth road surface. So I kind of thought, when you said this is neck close to the Belgian border, is actually right by the Belgian border and actually kind of cross over between the Netherlands and Belgium <laughs> in the course of the race. No, it's not a border cross world <laughs> championship. It's only yeah. a cyclocross. But but um, do, do you know who um, designed the track? No, I don't. No, was it was it, it, uh, gr- was it Johan Remkes? <laughs> no, no, it's um, uh, Mathieu van der Poel's father. Ah, oh, right, okay. He's, uh, he is a cyclocross track designer, and before that, his grandfather did it. So it is, uh, yeah, you could all almost say that. Um, I, I, actually, I never heard of it, but um, um, I would immediately suspect that uh, his father would design a course in such a way that yeah. it would benefit his own son. But apparently, nobody has ever thought about that uh, who's, who are following that, uh, that, uh, uh, that sport. Um, um, but um, um, it, it does, your theory, I think, does um, um, uh, 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 explain why the Belgians are so um, uh, good in this good sport. This event, because, yeah. yeah, basically, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's their daily experience yes. on the road uh, <laughs> turns into a sport. Um, but it's getting more and more um, uh, popular, uh, I heard. Um, uh, and now, you, usually, you do it in like these rural areas where you have an open yeah. field and you can, of course, uh, uh, dig some holes and uh, have a, have a muddy track. But yeah. I, I, I uh, uh, as I understood it, more and more uh, countries and also um, uh, large cities uh, are trying to organize cyclocross events. For example, London and Berlin uh, are are looking into that. So um, uh, it is a sport that's becoming more and more popular, and um, uh, at least we uh, we have a good. Dutch um, <laughs> Dutch cyclocrosser that can win uh, all the medals for us. Yeah, but there's one part of the course where you actually have to sort of pick your bike up and uh, put it on your shoulder and uh, run up a hill, which uh, must be a massive disadvantage for Dutch cyclists because. Uh yeah, yeah, but not if you are from Hoge Heide, because uh, uh, <laughs> Hoge Heide is one of the few places in the Netherlands that's kind of hilly. It's yeah. uh, it was the the border of this 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 ice age. Um, uh, yeah, how do you call that? Well, the glac- the glaciers. The yeah, 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 exactly. So that's that's why it is a little bit hilly over there. 
Um, and uh, Mathieu van der Poel comes from the area, so uh, he, he, he knows it very well. Yeah. And uh, he had some experience uh, 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 yeah, cycling up and down uh, these hills. Good, uh, good win for him on home turf. So all this kind of but, uh, uh, talk yeah, of... They, uh, they do it all the time, uh, um, uh, uh, stepping off the bike and uh, yeah. Yeah, basically carrying it up a stairs or a hill or something. That's, yeah. uh, of course, that, yes, that, that's, so uh, carrying bikes up flights of stairs is a very Dutch thing, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I guess it must be. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You, you usually yeah. very treacherous staircases as well. So, yeah. So yeah. good win for Mathieu Boer van der Poel uh, there. So well done to him. Uh, all this talk of kind of um, ups and steep ups and downs and shaky ground, I think uh, dovetails rather nice into this uh, week's op for the week, uh, which is uh, all about local politics, Paul. So uh, take it away. Yes, uh, the op of this week comes from the 12 provincial capitals because the NOS uh, shockingly concluded that former and current members of Forum for Democracy have the worst absence records in the provincial councils. Yeah, you were uh, shocked, shocked broadca- to learn this. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the public broadcaster analyzed the absence records of all 570 provincial representatives in plenary sessions since election year 2019. And uh, since then, FDA councillors are responsible for one-third of the no-shows at meetings. Um, Cherry Boudet's Forum for Democracy won 15% of the votes, or 86 seats, in the last provincial elections, and thus became the largest party in the provinces and subsequently in the Eerste Kamer as well. But uh, since then, it has his party has virtually collapsed. Uh, I, uh, As I was writing this script, I was uh, uh, sort of trying to uh, do a little recap on, on what exactly happened when his party collapsed. But... Uh, um, uh, at some point, uh, that recap was was longer than the entire uh, than yeah, the rest of yeah. this, uh, the, the 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 section. So I thought, well, let's just not do it. it was we longer than the whole to... season of Huidijde uh, Slechtertijden or some kind of <laughs> some other Dutch soap. Really, it, it was a soap yeah, opera. Indeed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It is definitely a story that is. If you're unfamiliar with it, to 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 listen to it, we uh, will link to the episode we did when uh, this collapse happened. It, w- it was one of the the most chaotic weeks I think we ever had in, yeah. <laughs> in the Netherlands. There were there were there were incidents with um, uh, 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 stolen keys and love affairs and um, <laughs> um, 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 uh, yeah, all sorts of. It was the pinnacle of political drama, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we will refer to uh, to that episode uh, in the liner notes so you can uh, re-listen uh, uh, to that. It is really worth um, to do, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, um, um, as I said, uh, uh, 86 Forum for Democracy seats initially, but yeah, a number of of these freshly elected uh, forum representatives uh, probably already had cold feet on on that uh, uh, on, on that same election night because uh, Baudet gave his notorious uh, Owl of Minerva speech that night. Um, oh yes, the real collapse. Yeah, you, you remember it. We yes. remember that. Yeah. Um, uh, the real collapse came in November 2020, as I said, um, and um, uh, basically after that. Uh, I think 80% of the forum representatives split off, either went on as an independent uh, representative or formed a new party. Um, um, uh, but but m- a lot of them since then basically stopped showing up on these in these plenary chambers. Um, nine in the uh, top 10 of the most absent provincial representatives were originally elected as members of forum. Um, eight of them had stepped out of the party in the past years. Uh, and the list is headed by Krijn Maut from North Holland. He wasn't present at 20 of the 47 plenary meetings in Harlem. 
so that's almost half of the uh, of, 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 of all the meetings. Um, and Forum responded to NOS's findings. They said that their num they said that their members are no professional politicians, and they give broader meaning to being counselor than just attending meetings. <laughs> and Baudet also issued a, a video saying that NOS was spreading fake news because uh, yeah, eight of these uh, 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 representatives they said were from Forum um, um, are now independent. But I think um, uh, uh, emphasizing that uh, 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 seven, uh, out of, seven out of eight of your representatives have um, fled your party is not <laughs> the defense. Yeah, um, not the strongest defense you could offer. Yeah. No, no. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, the next provincial elections are held on March 15th and Forum is, to say the least, uh, currently not expected to um, meet the uh, results of uh, four years ago again. Um, so um, I think that's a, fairly, that's a relief. Fairly, fairly <laughs> safe bet, yeah. It's kind of curious, isn't it, that a Forum for Democracy during the uh, lockdown was the party that was out and about on the streets and saying how terrible it is that we can't go anywhere and we have to work from home. And then when you uh, we actually come out of lockdown, we can all go back to work again they don't show up yeah <laughs> interesting it's almost it? as if their kind of uh, yeah, objections uh, were not somehow fully sincere yeah yeah very interesting <laughs> This week, we bring you the latest on the rescue effort in Turkey and Syria. The government has to go back to the drawing board on asylum policy. The MH17 investigation finds Vladimir Putin's fingerprints on the Book of Missile, and the Dutch are eating less cheese. Plus, we bring you news of the big art show in Amsterdam that everybody's talking about. But first, efforts are continuing to rescue people trapped beneath the rubble of collapsed buildings following this week's devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. But with night temperatures dropping below freezing, the chances of finding anyone alive are fading fast. A 74-year-old man and a 10-month-old baby are among those to have been pulled from the wreckage in the last 24 hours, as well as a 10-year-old girl who had to have her crushed arm amputated. The 7.8 magnitude quake struck in the early hours of Monday and was followed by several strong aftershocks, including a 7.5 at around lunchtime. Some 23 million people are living in the affected areas, which includes the Turkish province of Gaziantep and the Syrian cities of Aleppo and Homs. Four Dutch rescue teams, comprising 65 people and eight search dogs, have been working in the Turkish city of Hatay since Tuesday. They're now limiting their operations to daylight hours, and the search for survivors is likely to be called off after the weekend. So far, 21,000 people are known to have died, nearly 18,000 in Turkey and more than 3,300 in Syria, and those numbers are expected to keep rising. Yeah, and um, a lot of people in the Netherlands have, of course, relatives in Turkey and, and Syria as well. What, what, what has been their response? Yeah, there's been a huge response, obviously, from the Turkish and the Syrian community, and more widely as well. Around 2 million euros has been donated so far to a special Dutch bank account for the Red Cross to buy supplies for the disaster area. Uh, collections of food, clothing, mattresses and emergency supplies have been organised by mosques and community centres. Although, I mean, I've seen a few messages on social media saying you're better off just giving money, because those items are actually a lot more cheaper in you know, a lot cheaper to buy in Turkey, so your donations yeah. will go further. Uh, I've seen a few people saying that. Um, the Giro 555 account uh, for disasters and uh, emergency relief has been opened for donations as well, and the website for that is giro555.nl. And several municipalities have pledged support on a one euro per resident basis. Um, 
Dutch, uh, typically sort of Dutch, a uh, bit of uh, number crunching, I think. Uh, so Amsterdam is giving 905,000 euros. Rotterdam is uh, giving 664,000. Uh, Amsterdam is obviously, the municipality is a bit bigger than the city. It brings takes in places like Diemen and Vesp. And it's, that's why it's uh, yeah. that kind of size number. Uh, Utrecht is giving 362,000 and Svolle is donating 132,000. And beyond the Office of Help, obviously a lot of people are just anxiously waiting, hoping for news of family and friends who live in the area. So there are around 430,000 people of Turkish origin in the Netherlands and more than 50,000 Syrians. Obviously their numbers have been swelled in recent years because of the large numbers of people fleeing the civil war. Ahmed from Drenthe told RTL his mother and sister had been rescued from beneath four floors of rubble, but his aunt and her three children were still missing. So lots of people with several dozen relatives and people they know uh, all unaccounted for. And um, officially, one Dutch national has been confirmed dead in the quake. Furkan Kashi, who's 26, was in Karaman Maris at the time, and his death was confirmed by Dave into Central Mosque. Eight other Dutch people are still missing. And uh, what has the Dutch government been doing in the meantime? Well, the aid to Turkey is being coordinated by the United Nations Central Emergency Response Fund, which the Netherlands contributes to. And the government is also sending 10 million euros of aid to Syria. International Trade Minister Alicia Schreinemacher has said it's vital not to forget Syria, which, of course, as well as the earthquake, has been ravaged by more than a decade of civil war, which, of course, has complicated the efforts to get relief to the country because there are no diplomatic channels anymore. And the only safe access road between Turkey and Syria was blocked off by the earthquake, although it has since reopened. And parts of northern Syria are controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which the UN regards as a terrorist organization, so they don't want disaster relief money um, being diverted to them. But there are also voices calling for the sanctions against Bashir al-Assad's regime to be suspended to allow more aid to get through. Uh, Hala Naum Nehme, a former Fefe Day councillor in Amsterdam who was born in Aleppo, said ordinary Syrians are paying a heavy price for the conflict. Yeah, and uh, the king has also sent a message of support as well from uh, the Caribbean, uh, from the Dutch Caribbeans, right? Yeah, as is customary, uh, King Philip Alexander and uh, Queen Maxima have uh, sent uh, messages of support uh, via the uh, royal household and on social media. He is on the island of uh, Saint Eustatius at the moment, and uh, he was uh, in, in looking at the rec- uh, actually the rebuilding operation in the wake of Hurricane Irma, which caused devastation in the Dutch Caribbean region uh, in 2017. And he said he praised the resilience of locals and said it shows what you can do when uh, you've lost everything, your backs against the wall. Uh, The king and queen issued a statement saying our thoughts are with the victims, their relatives, the injured and with the families of Syrians and Turks in the Netherlands who are missing people and living with great uncertainty. And so a message of support from the king to the Turkish and Syrian community there. Yeah, and um, um, Hurricane Irma... Um, caused so much devastation on these uh, Caribbean islands and uh, St. Eustatius and uh, St. Martin as well and, uh, and Saba. Um, um, yeah. Saba too yeah. of course yeah and uh, if you compare uh, images of, 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 of that uh, disaster to, to images coming from Turkey and Syria the level of devastation is indeed uh, so enormous and if you if you take into account that this hurricane um, happened in 2017 and they're still rebuilding um, everything, you think uh, uh, how long is it going to take in in, in Turkey if uh, if they go if they have to rebuild all these devastated cities? Of course, the the damage is so much larger because uh, the yeah, the area affected is is of course uh, uh, much more heavily populated. It's going to be such an enormous effort to rebuild everything, uh, n- not to mention all the grief of all these. 
people that have passed away in this disaster. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just very, very, uh, almost un- un- unimaginable uh, the scale of the devastation. Um, the president of Turkey said it was the worst disaster since uh, a huge quake in 1939. So our thoughts go out, uh, obviously, to all the people who are um, missing or waiting to hear from uh, relatives and people in the earthquake disaster zone and all those who are working to try and rescue them. The Council of State ruled on Wednesday that the cabinet's restriction on refugees bringing their families to the Netherlands as long as the applicant hadn't found a proper place to live are in conflict with both Dutch and European law. The highest administrative court looked into three cases in which refugees with residency permits were not allowed to bring their partner and children to the country. The restriction on family reunion was imposed last summer as part of a package of measures negotiated by the coalition partners to temporarily reduce immigration and give the cabinet time to process the backlog of asylum seekers. During the summer, hundreds of people, including children, were forced to sleep in makeshift tents on the grass outside the refugee reception center in Ter Apel because of capacity issues. Junior Justice Minister Erik van den Burg, who is responsible for immigration, had already suspended the measure pending the Council of State verdict. The ruling means that some 1,200 people will now be given a visa to the Netherlands, and the issue of family reunification is a politically sensitive one within the coalition. Christenunie had said it would only support restrictions if they were legally acceptable, uh, and Christenunie and D66 have also called for a better spread of refugees across the country, while uh, the VVD party has focused on measures to stop the influx. Yes, and of course, the whole issue of uh, spreading asylum seekers uh, was a very sensitive one in itself. Yes, you could say that. One of the main causes of the backlog in uh, Ter Apel was the lack of asylum seeker centers in the rest of the country, where asylum seekers are sent to after they are registered in the immigration reception center in Ter Apel. Uh, Van den Beurs repeated calls on municipalities to open emergency shelters and asylum seeker centers were unsuccessful. Um, I believe there were at some point only two houses made available or something by municipalities all over the country after weeks of uh, of, 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 of pleading basically um, and um, yeah it was also noted that the existing asylum seeker centers were unevenly spread over the country and disproportionately located in rural municipalities and as a result uh, Van den Burg proposed a bill to allow the government to force local authorities to accommodate asylum seekers but this led to a mini rebellion by VVD backbenchers who threatened to vote against the law um, and Prime Minister Margrethe uh, had to fly back from a climate summit to convince his Tweede Kamer faction to vote in favour, uh, which they eventually did, but only uh, if Rutte promised that the law would be balanced by measures to reduce the number of refugees and that he would lobby in uh, Europe to uh, for, for tougher immigration um, uh, rules and regulations. Yeah, so basically the, this rule that... Um, uh, uh, about um, uh, refugees not being uh, having to wait six months to join their families was, was part of that deal, uh, one of Ritter's concessions to his MPs, and it's now been chucked out by the courts. So it's all sort of up and it's all been thrown into turmoil again. And uh, yeah. yeah, and meantime, Ritter is now using, as you say, uh, t- tougher language in Brussels uh, to lobby for um, yeah uh, the EU to take a harder line on immigration. Yeah, in, in preparation of the EU summit on immigration that's taking place uh, right now, that started yesterday, um, Rutte had written a paper. <laughs> I didn't know he did that, but he apparently he oh. did. And he distributed it among EU leaders. And in it, he calls on the EU to improve asylum procedures and allocate more funds to Frontex. That's the agency that protects the EU's outer borders. 
Um, additionally, the EU should apply visa restrictions to countries that do not cooperate on returns, and the focus should be on implementing Dublin and countering uh, irregular secondary migration, according to Rutte. And uh, yeah, he also warned that the EU's passport-free Schengen area uh, would not survive, and Northern European countries could start re-establishing internal borders if the Dublin rules are not applied. And under these uh, Dublin agreements, uh, asylum seekers should request refugee status in the first country they enter in the EU. But um, yeah, as a result, Mediterranean countries uh, argue that uh, this disproportionately puts a strain on, on them. And they have called on EU countries for more solidarity and relocations. Basically, the southern European countries want a spreidingswet yes. for Europe. Yeah. Um, something that uh, the VVD wants for uh, uh, or, or at least uh, the cabinet wants for uh, the, for the Netherlands, yeah. Um, and yeah, they probably have a point because you know m most uh, asylum seekers, most people, most Im immigrants, they they arrive in the southern European countries, and um, um, uh, it, it's just impossible for them to process uh, all these all these people, these huge waves of peoples. So yeah, it's it's more logical to spread it over over the rest of the EU, and that is, I think, um, yeah. Uh, 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 part of the whole EU um, project, right? This uh, solidarity among EU members. Uh, and, and, and I think it should also apply on uh, in, in, in this area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. And, and, and that's been the argument, I think, of uh, the uh, parties, of, yeah, the, the other parties in the coalition, Desens, Zestek and Christelune, saying that this has to be negotiated between European countries, especially as they have this open yeah. border arrangement. You can't just Im try and impose your own rules unilaterally. Um, uh, but also, Richard's got had some uh, things to say about uh, the idea of some member states that there should be a border wall. Effectively, we should build a wall and uh, yeah. make I don't know who pay for it. But, uh, <laughs> the EU probably. That's EU, the idea. Yeah. 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 Um, in the paper, um, Rutte wrote that the Netherlands is open for all types of stationary and mobile border management infrastructure, which is way <laughs> of saying, well, uh, we're open for the idea of a border, I think. Yeah. Um, um, uh, as you said, uh, I think it is Austria that's they're planning to build a 2 billion euro fence along Bulgaria's border with Turkey. Uh, but in a debate in advance of the summit, Rutte told MPs that a border wall will not end the arrival of refugees. He added that uh, he planned to detoxify the issue of building a fence. And he also dismissed the idea that some sort of Berlin Wall around Europe is a realistic solution. Because uh, yeah, fences will always have holes and gates and uh, that an integrated package of measures is more effective uh, than uh, yeah, you know, more effective way of border controls than, uh, than a wall or a fence, he said. So. Um, um, uh, initially, he, th he was he was sort of thought to support the idea of a border wall, but he made a little U-turn on it. Yeah, or he gave at least a, a nuanced. Uh, uh, he gave a nuance uh, on on that. There are clear indications that Russian President Vladimir Putin personally authorised the transportation of the missile that shot down Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 over the Donbas region of Ukraine in July 2014. The joint investigation team in charge of evidence gathering published its 67-page final report this week in The Hague, and as part of that it released recordings of phone calls between key figures involved in firing the missile, including Putin. However, the JIT also concluded the evidence was not sufficient to meet the high standards required to prosecute any more suspects for the crime. And Prosecutor Dikhna van Butzela cited another complication, which is that uh, Vladimir Putin is the head of state of the Russian Federation and therefore enjoys international immunity. 
So that's not going any further. But uh, yeah, they did very much say that uh, sort of a, well, not quite that Putin's fingerprints were on the gun, but that he, he was kind of top the, the top end of a chain of command that went all the way down to the uh, the, the Russian back forces who were fighting in Ukraine. And I think um, uh, I saw Marika Dahorn, kind of legal uh, commentator, saying on news here last night that uh, basically he was kind of micromanaging the conflict, even at the same yeah. time as he was publicly denying that Russia was involved in any way at all. Uh, three military officers, two Russians and one Ukrainian, were convicted of shooting down the passenger plane on July the 17th, 2014, killing all 298 people on board, 196 of whom were Dutch nationals. And uh, Mark Rutte uh, said it was now clear that Putin was involved in the tragedy and said it showed that his only interest was in trying to slow things down, spread falsehood and injustice and pursue a terrible form of aggression in Ukraine. Yeah, and, and, and the um, in the press conference they... Uh, the investigators suggested that this decision made by Putin was made during his uh, visit to France for the uh, commemoration of, of, of D-Day. Yes. So on uh, June 6th, uh, what was it, 20, uh, 2014, the um, yeah. 17th anniversary of D-Day. Um, and yeah, it is just, you know, you see this picture of, of all these head of state gathered on, 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 on Omaha Beach. Yeah. And it is just so strange to think that, yeah, it was on that day because the... Uh, the intercepted phone calls they are saying that well the, the boss the number one I think they refer to him is, yeah. is still at this meeting in France we have to wait until he is uh, he's free and he can give his go ahead um, yeah, it's just so strange to, to think that uh, if you see that photo that at that exact moment he was you know, making decisions that ultimately affected uh, these um, uh, 298 people uh, and these 196 uh, uh, Dutch nationals um, uh, yeah. a couple of weeks later. Yeah, and also so what you yeah, so we're all part of the build-up to another, um, yeah, uh, terrible conflict in Europe. So it was, yeah. uh, it's a horrible kind of grim irony. But uh, yeah, as you say, that, that was one of the pieces of evidence that was produced at the press conference. And um, it was a phone call by uh, uh, involving a man called Sergei uh, Askinov, who's in charge of the occupying forces in Crimea, and said that uh, they'd, been, they'd asked for um, uh, missile defense systems to be sent to the Donbass, but the decision had been delayed because there was only one person who could sign off on the delivery of the missiles, and that was this number one yeah. or the first figure who they didn't mention by name. But effectively, it could be no other person than Vladimir Putin, because they said this person was otherwise engaged uh, at a summit in France. Uh, so it all kind of, yeah, ev yeah. everything kind of um, uh, synchronizes effectively. There was another phone call they um, uh, published uh, in 2017, which was it did involve uh, Vladimir Putin um, and uh, Igor Pyotnitsky, who was the head of the self-styled breakaway Republic of Luhansk. Um, and uh, it was a very short conversation. It was mainly about transfer of prisoners of war. But the Dutch investigators said uh, it was important because it establishes that Putin was directly involved in the decision-making chain in the Donbass region at the time, even though he was saying that uh, Russia wasn't uh, had nothing to do with it. Yeah, and and and, and this establishment, if you then just um, uh, uh, co uh, yeah connect that to this conversation that they're talking that, that these separatists are, are are having on the phone, saying that uh, our boss is is attending this 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 uh, commemoration in France. Yeah, one and one is two, right? So exactly, this, that yeah. was an important piece of evidence in this whole um, uh, in this whole uh, investigation. Um, of course, uh, um, um, and whenever uh, there is news about MH17, about uh, a step in the investigation, um, the victims' families organization is first 
uh, informed, right? That uh, yeah. that is that is almost standard procedure. Um, so they were present there. What, what 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 did they have to say? What was their reaction on on this news? On this yeah very explosive piece of um, of, uh, of of evidence? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, they're disappointed. The investigation isn't going any further, and there are no plans to charge any more suspects. But they also say that uh, it has brought an awful lot of um, information to light and answered a lot of the questions about what happened to their relatives. Uh, Piet Pluch, who is chair of the relatives campaign group uh, Stichting Vliegramp MH17 said the report would be considered by the European Court of Human Rights and the International Civil Aviation Organization uh, as part of their own investigations and prosecutors have also said it will feed into um, future investigations by the International Criminal Court and uh, any war crimes tribunal that is set up to deal with um, atrocities in Ukraine. Plouffe said it was shocking to hear that Putin was so personally involved in a war that he always said yeah. had no Russian presence. But he also said that only the crew who fired the Buktela missile uh, could really tell the world if it was a deliberate act, an accident or something in between. We hope you find this podcast an entertaining and informative summary of the latest news from the Netherlands, uh, whether it's a deliberate act or an accident. Uh, we're never quite sure. But we really couldn't keep going without the generous support of our lovely patrons who give up a few of their hard-earned euros or dollars each month to help us make these podcasts, which is a much more time-consuming task than it maybe sounds. We'd like to give our new patrons a shout-out and a chance to ask us a question. Last week we said hello and thank you to new patron Sandra Topsand, and she took the time to reply with a lovely message, so we thought we'd give her another shout-out. We won't read out the yes. whole thing, but among other things, uh, Sandy clarified her surname, uh, which you were very intrigued by, Paul. Yeah, I was. So uh, she said apparently it's a double-barreled name that went rogue. She said uh, Top and Zunt got married a couple of hundred years ago and somebody at the uh, registry office forgot to put in the hyphen. So ah. it uh, became one sort of fused surname. But Top Zunt is a top name. I always it like is. the fact that things like professional sport is called Top Sport. It's like that, isn't it? It's, top, yeah. it's like the absolute you know, pinnacle of the best possible sand you could possibly achieve. Yeah, we also use it for criminals. Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Willem Holleder is a top criminal. <laughs> uh, she went on to describe uh, how she came to the Netherlands from Zimbabwe via South Africa and uh, arrived in 2005 with her then partner. And like so many ex- other expats, I came to the Netherlands on a sort of adventure and never left, she says. Uh, her father was a Dutchman uh, from Lochem, uh, who then emigrated uh, to Southern Africa. And she discovered recently that the elderly lady who lives next door to her now used to live in the same street as her great aunt. So, <laughs> really, the small world we live yeah. in. <laughs> it is a small country, so you're you're bound to stumble upon these sort of uh, uh, coincidences at some point. But yeah, her story is more, even more remarkable given her detour via what was it, Zimbabwe and, and yeah. South Africa. So uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. And she also says that uh, with a Dutch surname, I'm often shamefully explaining why my Dutch isn't of a better standard. And then uh, signs off with some nice words about Dutch news and says the podcast gives her an extra reason to look forward to Fridays. But uh, yeah, um, ah, unfortunately, this week we talking about a lot of death and destruction so uh, <laughs> yeah. that's a bit of a yeah. downer but uh, very very nice to hear from uh, from you sandy and uh, wish you well and uh, yeah and very nice to hear from all our patrons yes and the death and destruction segments are now over we're now going to talk yeah. about diets trains and uh, and painting so uh, cheese and renaissance art so yeah m- m- much more positive so keep listening if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast ask us some questions or just make us feel good about ourselves log on to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutch news nl 
The Dutch diet is improving slightly, but most people still do not adhere to the official health eating guidelines, the Public Health Institute RIVM said on Thursday. I think the people at the RIVM are very happy that finally they can now focus uh, on, on these sort of researches again instead of uh, um, how many people uh, have died uh, of corona, everything pandemic yeah. related. Yeah. In particular, the research shows people are eating more vegetables and fruit, unsalted nuts and uh, pulses as well, and uh, they also consume less red and processed meats. So, uh, yeah, that is indeed a positive development. Both adults and children are also consuming fewer sugary drinks. The new research, which dates from 2021, shows that people are now eating an average of 163 grams of vegetables a day, compared with 128 grams in 2010. So, yeah, we're growing in the right direction. What is the what is the advised amount? 200 grams a day, I think, or something? Is it 200 grams? Mm, yeah, I thought so. 200 grams vegetables, two pieces of fruit a day. You have the sky from five, don't you? You're supposed to eat sort of five uh, items of fruit and vegetables in the course of the day. No, the sky from five is something else. It's, it's five types of food. Oh, five, I five think, different types of to, food. Sorry, yeah. If you want to know more, go to foodingcentrum.nl. Yeah. In total, 27% of the population eat the recommended amount of veg and 19% eat the recommended level of fruit. The consumption of red and processed meat is down 20% and tea and water were also replacing sugar-filled drinks. The survey was done under 3,500 adults and children. And just under half of Dutch adults are keeping to the recommendation of no more than one alcoholic drink a day and uh, that's something that uh, the this the team of this podcast is not adhering to at all do we believe <laughs> this do we believe that people are really never half of people are drinking a maximum of one uh, alcoholic drink a day I said, this is a survey right this is people talking about their own behavior I am a little bit skeptical here especially I wonder what this means do they take like a weekly average or something or, or, or exactly or, or, I think or, this is a thing or, you see we had old um, discussion of this in a whatsapp group and immediately people are sort of doing all these trade-offs saying oh well I, yeah, I drink at the weekends but I don't drink during the week so surely on average yeah. I think a lot of people make these kind of calculations and probably when the survey asks them do you drink more than one drink a day they say no no because on most days they don't but yeah yes exactly yeah i think they may have sort of taken a rather elastic uh, approach to uh, the concept yeah. of one drink a day i also have some doubts about this uh, these <laughs> statements yeah and also shockingly uh, the consumption of dairy products in the netherlands has fallen by 10 percent despite recommendations to maintain current levels and um, uh, the dutch are the yeah, one of the tallest people in the world. I think it's number one or number two in the world. Yeah. We have been surpassed literally by uh, uh, another nationality recently. But one of the reasons that the Dutch are so tall is the intensive dairy consumption from a very young age. We, uh, we, we drink a lot of milk, we eat a lot of cheese, we eat a lot of yogurt. So that results in our average tallness. But yeah, if we are reducing our dairy c uh, consumption, we might have some shorter people in the, in the, in the coming years, in the coming decades. And that's also a problem for cyclocross because uh, yes. long legs is a plus um, in that sport. So, um, yeah, this is a shocking development. It's a shocking development. Yeah, we'll lose our cyclocross advantages. On the other hand, we'll we all be able to fit into our houses again in uh, our canal side <laughs> houses. Right. So that's a, that, that's a yeah. good thing. Yeah, I guess given that um, uh, a third of uh, dairy farmers are having to give up in the next couple of years, it's probably a good thing that we're consuming less milk and cheese, right? It depends on who you ask. It um, does, yeah. <laughs> if you ask Johan Remkes, he'll probably tell you it's a good Yeah, yeah. and uh, I'd also heard that uh, a lot of Dutch fishermen have to give up their jo their jobs as well, uh, their businesses. So uh, the, the this development that people are f eating fewer fish is also... Uh, yeah 
um, in that in that light, uh, a good development. So it's less raw herring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> less raw herring. Even though I think they are mostly caught by Norwegians and Scots fishermen, yeah. right? Yeah. And also uh, another bad development is that the use of food supplements is going up. So. Um, oh yes. There, there are some positive developments, but also uh, a lot of negatives as well. If you ever fancy catching the night train to Berlin, then good news, because tickets for the new service are going on sale from next week. The first trains will roll out of Brussels on May the 25th, and they go via Rotterdam, The Hague, Amsterdam and Amersfoort. It's a, quite a circular route, and arrive in the German capital just before 7am. The cheapest tickets will cost €49, Euros, although if you actually want to lie down, you're going to have to pay at least 79 for a berth in a couchette. <laughs> I just read um, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, and I, these are terms that I only heard in, in, in that book. I know. So, uh, <laughs> it's a nice coincidence that I hear them now on the podcast as well. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, they won't quite be as romantic, these trains, less kind of wood paneling and uh, you know, sort of decorative lights, but also fewer people being murdered on them, hopefully. <laughs> so that's a plus. Operator European sleeper hopes to extend the line to Prague next year and they're already talking about running night trains to Barcelona from 2025 hmm. so night trains are really coming back into fashion funny I think only a couple of years ago they scrapped the last one to Warsaw and sort of it looks as if the night trains are being abolished and now they're bringing them all back again and that's uh, kind of an initiative by the European Commission which is backing 14 international routes in an attempt to encourage more people to travel by train over land rather than fly between European cities and promote what it calls green mobility which is a a phrase that could only have been invented in Brussels. <laughs> Barcelona is the most popular short-haul destination for Dutch travellers. Around 1.5 million people flew there last year from Schiphol, and as a result, prices for flights are very competitive. European Sleeper is looking to charge €110 Euros for a single ticket to the Catalan city, but that's still around €30 Euros more than expensive than flying, and obviously it takes quite a bit longer. Yeah, did they disclose how long it's going to take uh, to go to Barcelona by train from Rotterdam? I don't know if they've said that, but I know currently if you go and obviously you have to change trains and it's really cumbersome it takes about 11 hours to get down to Barcelona so um, I mean to get to Berlin from Amsterdam I think it, the train pulls into Amsterdam around about 10 o'clock and you arrive in Berlin just before 7 so it's a 9 hour trip but you know supposedly you're asleep for much of it yeah if you're going by the night train yeah the night train yeah, um, yeah to Barcelona I guess it would probably be yeah it's some I don't know, nine, ten hours maybe if they get if they get their act together. Who knows? If they would manage that, I would be really surprised. But uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So, uh, what exactly is the European Commission offering to uh, to train companies? Mainly warm words. Um, it says it will use all the means at its disposal to overcome obstacles to train travel. Uh, so it will ho advise European sleeper on regulations and help it uh, track down subsidies. But uh, actual money subsidies from the European Commission uh, will not be forthcoming. Hmm. Which, yeah, I guess, is a bit of a sticking point because uh, cost is uh, one of the main obstacles to train travel. Travelling by train overland is still expensive compared to flying because the aviation industry has very successfully lobbied to, to keep costs down. So things like the zero tax rate on kerosene, for example. And the other thing, of course, is that European railways are run by national governments. So cross-border travel is, uh, in the words of European Sleepers founder Chris Engelsmann, uh, a jungle of bureaucracy. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's probably a good way to describe and everything that involves the EU as well. Because if, if you tangle the European Commission uh, in this or in this jungle of bureaucracy, yeah. then 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 it would be an even more inhospitable <laughs> <laughs> zone of bureaucracy. I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think people are really willing to take the train to these sort of uh, medium distance uh, locations. But as you say, it's just a hassle to travel from the Netherlands, for example, to Vienna. You have to switch 
trains two or three times. Uh, uh, it costs a lot of money. So if the European Commission can establish more direct lines and as a result perhaps uh, make it less expensive, then I think uh, a lot of people will be willing to take the train to these uh, locations. Yeah, the other thing that always people always come stuck, stuck on trying to travel by train is ticket booking because, again, there's no real yeah. centralised booking point and uh, often to get the best fare you have to sort of spend half a day really looking around various websites to actually get a reasonable cost. So, yeah, simplifying that would be a definite bonus and timetabling there's no kind of central european timetable anymore so no yeah it's a job actually finding out when the trains are running the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam calls it not just a once-in-a-lifetime, but a now-or-never opportunity. 28 of the 35 known paintings by Dutch 17th-century master painter Johannes Vermeer are on display together in the exhibition simply called Vermeer, opening today. The show is the first retrospective exhibition in the Netherlands of one of its most famous painters. It features celebrated works of art, such as uh, The Girl with a Pearl Earring, The Milkmaid and View on Delft, coming from uh, Dutch collections, but also loans from France, Germany, Ireland, Japan, uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. So these paintings are coming from all over the world to the Rijksmuseum, to the unfortunately named Philips Wing. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think they need to find a new sponsor for that. Uh, Rapidly, I think. Yeah, yeah for yeah. that uh, wing of the museum. The exhibition includes a controversial painting, Girl with the Flute, which the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. last year announced to fall short of Vermeer's standards, demoting it to simply the studio of Vermeer. But the Rijksmuseum stands by its own assessment that it is indeed by the Dutch master. And if you want to visit the exhibition yourself, you need to be quick because already 200,000 tickets have been sold. There's a real run on tickets yeah. for this exhibition. The Rijksmuseum's website has been virtually inaccessible the past week due to the high demand. So uh, if you're lucky, uh, you can still buy some tickets. But the reality is that probably you are already too late. Yeah, but you have to be really fast if you want to see what is perhaps the best known Vermeer painting, uh, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Because there's been a little bit of op-hef about the, the role of this uh, particular work in the exhibition, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because uh, the, the Girl with the Pearl Earring, that's uh, probably the best known work of art by Johannes Vermeer. It usually hangs in the Mauritshuis and uh, that museum from The Hague has lent it to the Rijksmuseum exhibition uh, but it was revealed this week only for eight weeks. Mm. Um, so the exhibition runs until June but uh, yeah, if you want to see the most famous painting of Johannes Vermeer you have to be really quick. You have to uh, uh, go to the exhibition uh, before March 30th because from April 1st the painting will be replaced by a curtain. So that's not an <laughs> April Fool's joke. That yeah. is really what they're going to do. And apparently there was some, some miscommunication or some uh, really strange that with such an enormously famous and expensive piece of art, uh, such a miscommunication can happen. But uh, the Rijksmuseum has advertised with that painting, the girl with the pearl earring. But yeah, if it's only on display for a couple of weeks and not for the entire exhibition, then it is a little bit misleading. And that was what the OPEF was about. But a spokeswoman of the Maurice House said that uh, it is important that the painting is at the Rijksmuseum now, but that the museum should realize that it is a very rare ex exception for a once-in-a-lifetime uh, exhibition uh, and they added that the Rijksmuseum wouldn't part with the Nightwatch or the Louvre with the Mona Lisa. I mean, you couldn't part with the Nightwatch, could you? It'd just be physically impossible anyway, because it's huge. Are you unaware of the of the Nightwatch letterbox? The Nightwatch letterbox? So you have this passageway under the Rijksmuseum, right? Yeah. If you, and this is also fun for the listeners who are going to this exhibition and you're waiting in line for your tickets, if you look up, you see a sort of letterbox in the ceiling of that passageway. Right. And that is exactly where the, the Nightwatch 
hangs in the in the um, gallery of honor right and if it needs to move for some reason perhaps there is a german invasion who yeah. knows then they can just slide open this letterbox and they can just uh, lower it to the street right. basically wow it, it was specifically designed for that so ah. um, this is emergency, uh, it is, an emergency hatch for the night watch yeah yeah so it is relatively easy to move in case of uh, of an emergency okay. or in case of a loan to another museum yeah. but uh, i think it is illegal for the night watch and to be moved out of the country so um so you can't go to the louvre no yeah no so that's a fun fact uh, <laughs> for you there so uh, if you want to see the girl with the pearl earring uh, you can still do that uh, it is a nice opportunity for you to go to the hague and to visit the maurits house which is uh, in my opinion an even better museum than the rijksmuseum so um, you don't have to be disappointed. It's only a short train ride away. Exactly. Yeah, it's only about half an hour by train to The Hague. It's just a nice size, the Maritz House, isn't it? You can get yeah. around in the Rice Museum. You can be in there for a week and still not see everything. But uh, the Maritz House, you can get around in, a, in an hour and a half. It's just got so many great works of art in a small small area. Yeah. And a very nice uh, location as well, just next to the Hofweiver. So if, if you're bored of all the Rembrandts and Vermeers, you can turn around and look at the view outside. <laughs> or wave at uh, Mark Rutte, who is sitting next to you. Yeah, he's right next door. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.